0: Welcome to another edition of the Bighorn Podcast with interesting people and their extraordinary stories. I'm Marty Lachman, your host for these stories that have been shared by these brave, passionate, intelligent members of our community. This episode is brought to you with the support of Leeds and Son Fine Jewelers and AT&T, who reminds us, it can wait. Please don't drive distracted. Today's guest is Henry Levy, a member of the Bighorn community since 1999. Henry's intellect, his sense of humor, and his business success are only part of the story. But Henry's story starts in Messenheim, Germany, November 15th, 1938. Henry, welcome, and please take us on your journey.
1: Marty, thank you, and I think the most interesting part of my journey probably is the beginning of the journey. I always recall something my mother told me when I was younger. She said, as the only child, if you knew more about your history and about your family, oh, you'd be a lot better off when you're older. And because you're an only child, you're going to regret the fact that you don't know that much about how it began. She was certainly right about that. She also told me that if I didn't learn to play the piano better, that I would never amount to anything. So hopefully I at least went one for two. My story began in a very small village in the southwestern part of Germany called Meissenheim. It was a village of about 3,000 or 4,000 people my family had been there really for generations. They were in the wine business. They had a Keller or a winery right on the Rhine River. But it was called the Adler Keller which was my maternal grandfather's winery. I was born on November 15th, but about five days before that, there was an event in Germany called Kristallnacht, Kristallnacht. That means the night of broken glass. That was an evening where the German Reich had given tacit permission to really any youthful member of Hitler's youth, any thug, any lowlife, to enter German homes, businesses, temples, synagogues, and to basically destroy them. On November 10th, 1938, which was crystal knocked, around three o'clock in the morning, a group of thugs came into our house and basically tore it up. My father had been taken to Dachau, a concentration camp, several weeks before that. So it was just my mother and my grandmother in the house, and my mother was really nine months pregnant. And these hoodlums and thugs tore the house up, uh, ended up pushing my grandmother down the stairs, breaking her arm, and so it was. And that same occurrence happened in other homes in Meissenheim, our city. My father had been taken several weeks before to Meissenheim, so there was really no one in the house. About a month or so after I was born, My mother took papers that we had from the US State Department. She got on a train and went on about a four-hour trip from Meissenheim to Dachau, the concentration camp, presented the papers, and fortunately was able to get my father out of Dachau. Uh, We returned, or they returned to Meissenheim, and we immediately left and went to Luxembourg, where we stayed for several months. We literally left everything that we had at our house in Meissenheim, and with very little, went to Luxembourg. We stayed there, as I said, for several months, and then we made our way to England. We stayed in England for several months and finally made passage to Ellis Island uh, where we arrived when I was 17 months old. Fortunately, we had a lot of family in the States, specifically in Memphis. My grandmother had four sisters and a brother. The brother had come to the States when he was 17 years old, I really don't know a lot of the background. I do know that he ended up in Memphis and over a period of time acquired a good deal of real estate, uh, several hotels. And one by one, he brought each of his sisters to Memphis. My grandmother was the last sister to come with my parents. And we went immediately to Memphis. And again, started with absolutely nothing. I remember, or at least I was told, my father wanted to get back into the wine business. And his first job, when we got back to Memphis, was delivering grape drinks off a Coca-Cola truck. Our family helped us get started, which is the way a lot of immigrants got started from family that had preceded them to the States. And that's really how it all began.
0: Henry, because I've had in in my life, not to the degree that you have, but some traumatic events early on in my life, and you said, I was told or I remembered. What is your first recollection? Do you have any memories of that time? and, And did it affect you even at very early age, any of these events that now have transpired?
1: Well... When we got to the States again, I was 17 months old, and my parents really never talked a lot about what had occurred in Germany. All of our language was German. I really spoke German before I spoke English. And what my parents had gone through, in particular what my mother had gone through, was very, very difficult. They were always overly protective of me. There was a lot of seriousness in our family. That doesn't mean that uh, there wasn't fun. But my mother's parents, uh, my grandparents on my maternal side, never left Germany. They apparently died in Theresienstadt, which was one of the concentration camps. I do remember uh, on one occasion when I was maybe four or five years old coming into our apartment Uh, My mother was crying. She'd gotten a letter from her mother. And that was the last time that there was any conversation about that. It was the last time that she apparently heard from her parents. So I think when you go through something like that, your outlook is quite different. And again, there was a lot of seriousness when I was growing up. When I went to school, it was intended that I worked hard, that I kept my nose to the grindstone. And again, we didn't have a lot when we came to this country. There were a lot of nice, funny things that I recall growing up. But basically, it was a very normal childhood that I experienced through grammar school, junior high school, and high school. But I was always focused on behaving Uh, That doesn't mean I never got in trouble, because I got in trouble a lot by doing things I shouldn't have done. On a more humorous side, on one or two occasions, I remember we all lived in one of the apartments that my grandmother's brother, who had brought us over, owned. And I remember on uh, Easter Sunday one day, when I was maybe four or five or six years old, going around to various apartments uh, asking for Easter eggs. And when I was told that they didn't have any Easter eggs, I asked just for regular eggs. And I remember coming home, you know, with with maybe two dozen regular eggs, which we ate over a period of time. I also remember when I was maybe five or six years old, going downtown on the bus with my mother to Crest department stores. And I remember that we just passed some playing cards and some poker chips. And I asked my mother if I could have a poker chip, and she said no. And when she wasn't looking, I took a poker chip, put it in my pocket, and on the bus going home, pulled it out, announced that I had it, which was quite upsetting. And I remember that that evening, my father, who had gone into a different business that I'll talk about, had one of his employees called our house and asked to speak to Henry Levy. And I got on the telephone and he asked me if I had stolen a poker chip. And I told him, no, I just found the, found the chip in my pocket. And he advised me that the police would be coming by the house a little bit later to take me to jail. I think I was four or five years old and I remember I did not sleep very well that evening, and I have never stolen a poker chip
0: since. Well, at least you broke, broke I, your I, one I, bad habit. I, I did break even.
1: I also remember going to uh, elementary school on one occasion. Uh, when I was in the fifth grade, I had been promoted to captain of the safety patrol, and my position was guarding the driveway at the school. Uh, When we eventually moved to a different residence in a different school, I had to give up that position. And I was told that I really had a great future as a safety patroller, because no one had been run over on the driveway during my period. But that was really, those were the early years
0: of my life. Henry, first of all, at the very start, just to go back to that for a second, you've written a book... Uh, born under a lucky star, getting your dad out of that concentration camp, I can't even imagine that was a stroke of luck in itself because how many people were let out of concentration camp at that time. And then to be able to have your family intact coming over to the United States, as you look back on your life, I mean that must be something that you've been thankful for
1: ever oh, since. Without that, with that question, my father eventually, uh, after a few years of delivering drinks, realized he couldn't make a living and support a family doing that. He ended up starting a broom and mop and industrial chemical. Company with financial help from our family, from my great uncle in particular. And that was really, those were the dollars that we really had when I was growing up. I remember in the summertime, one of the jobs that I had growing up was going to the broom factory where he had maybe 15 or 20 mostly African American broom makers. And I would sit in the middle of that broom factory and every time the broom makers made a dozen brooms, they would bring them over to me, and I would give them a button. And at the end of the day, depending on how many dozen brooms they made, they would take those buttons into the office, and they would get paid for that. In the meantime, if you knew how brooms were made, uh, there's a lot of dust and broom corn that's flying around, And in the summer heat, the last thing you want to be doing is sitting in a broom factory itching all day. So I did that for a couple of years, and as I got older, when I got older, I ended up putting a lot of these brooms and mops in my car. I had an old Plymouth at that time, and I would take a dozen brooms and mops with me in the car, and I would go to certain neighborhoods in Memphis take these brooms and mops out, put them on my back and carry them and go door to door and would be selling these brooms and mops. I was reasonably uh, entrepreneurial when I was uh, younger. I liked to to sell. I was always good at it, whether it was magazine subscriptions, brooms. I had a lawn care business. I would cut grass, as many young kids did, uh, to earn money to do things. And that's really how, in many respects, I grew up. When I was 16 years old, my father died suddenly from a heart attack. He was 56. I was 16 years old. And, you know, when you've been in the concentration camp, when you've never eaten the right foods, when you've never exercised, when you always had a cigar and a pipe in your mouth, you're not really in great shape. And that was a very difficult period of time for my mother and for me. Uh, She was 46, she was 11 years, uh, 10 years younger than my dad, and we really had very little dollars. Through a great deal of luck and good fortune, uh, about three years later, she met a 52-year-old bachelor who was in the securities business, he had his own firm. He happened to have been the uncle of a very close childhood friend of mine. His name was David Sternberger. And as I said, he was a bachelor. And after they got married, uh, he could not have been nicer to me than he was. I learned a great deal From David, and David's the one that got me interested in the securities business. I didn't know a stock from a tree uh, when my mother remarried, but David got me a job in my junior year at Vanderbilt at a now defunct brokerage house called Goodbody. One of the interesting things I remember about that experience is, uh, again, I was a summer intern there, and they didn't know what to do with me. They gave me that job because David was a good client of theirs. And that first day, they put me on the switchboard. They taught me or told me how to operate the switchboard when people would call in and ask to speak to brokers or to ask uh, what stock prices were for a certain stock. And I remember that first day... After I had done this for a while, I got a telephone call and some man said, where's uh, Alice Chalmers? Well, if you can remember, Marty, Alice Chalmers, A-L-L-I-S, Chalmers was a farm equipment manufacturer. I didn't know that at the time. I thought that was a person. So I picked up the microphone and throughout the entire office, I said, telephone call for Alice Chalmers. They immediately recognized that my talents as a telephone operator were very limited. So what they did, they put me on a raised platform in the front of the office and gave me a piece of chalk and told me when I saw the stock prices come across the ticker tape to use the chalk and to print the price on the board next to the symbol for a particular stock. Well, I did that throughout most of the summer, and at the end of the summer, I think I knew the name of every stock symbol that came across the board, and that's how I became interested in the market. I liked the action of the market. It was fun for me, uh, the making and the losing of dollars. And I knew very well that's what I wanted to do. After I graduated from Vanderbilt, David Sternberger encouraged me to go to graduate school so that I could learn more about business. And I ended up applying and being accepted at Columbia uh, in New York, where I went to business school. Before I did that, I was in the Air Force Reserves for six months of active duty and then Uh, seven years of reserve duty. And while I did that, that was one period of my life that, at least to me, was a waste. I think I came out of the uh, Air Force Reserve with the same rank that I had going in, which was no stripes. I mean, I did my duty. I was glad I did it. But after I got out of the active duty, I began Columbia in the winter session of 1961, and I went straight through and finished my MBA in really a year and a half. I think the next stage of my life was obviously trying to get a job. That was also a very interesting period for me. I ended up writing letters to about eight or nine different investment banks that I had become familiar with while in business school, trying to get interviews. And I would write these letters to the Human Resources Department at that time and announce that I was coming down for an interview and that I wanted to meet Mr. So-and-so at such time and place uh, on a certain date. I really didn't know that was the procedure or at least I thought that was the procedure that should work. But anyway, I would go to to Wall Street uh, on the trains and I would announce myself. I had a reasonably good resume from Columbia and also from Vanderbilt, but I'd get to these different firms and they didn't have a clue who I was and they had no intention of letting me meet the people that I'd written the letters to. So I went back to my dorm room at Columbia and began making telephone calls, and at that point began setting up meetings to visit and interview at the various investment banks. That, again, was a very interesting experience for me because I would go to these different firms, and in almost every instance back then, the people wanted to know who I knew, and not really what I knew, but who I knew that could help me do business. And as I said, I didn't really know anybody. I had never been to New York until I had gotten out of the reserves, and consequently, a lot of those meetings were not productive. Goldman Sachs was different. They were not so much interested in who I knew. There was very little nepotism at the firm at that time. They were very, very deliberate in the interview process. And I remember interviewing Goldman over a two, two and a half month period of time. I would take the subway from 116th Street down to Wall Street, and I would meet with maybe over that period of time, 15, 20 different people. And I recognized early on that if it was that difficult to get a job at Goldman, Goldman must be a pretty good place to go to work for. In any event, I did get a job And they put me through a pretty deliberate six-month training period where I would go through every area of Goldman, from the investment banking area to the municipal bond area to the research area to the back office. I wanted initially to go into the municipal bond business because Memphis at that time was a pretty big municipal bond area. But Goldman knew better than I did the area that I would fit in the most. And that was in what is today the wealth management area. Goldman today and in the investment banking area today is so different than it was in 1961, 62 when I started, because they hire in each section of the firm, they might hire 20, 25, 30 different people, or more, in wealth management, in municipals, in investment banking. When I interviewed and got that job, I was really the only one that they hired that year. And they were very good to me, and I learned an awful lot because I got a lot of individual intention. They started me off after the training program trying to develop a clientele that would purchase securities. Well, I didn't know anybody in New York, so I really just took to the streets and began knocking on doors, trying to develop a relationship with people. They also told me that I could call on people in upstate New York, places like Albany, Schenectady, Utica, Rome, Glens Falls, and they gave me that area because nobody else wanted to go there. And I remember taking Mohawk Airlines on many occasions and traveling in the wintertime and the summertime to those towns, and many of those towns aren't even there today. But it was a lot easier to get in to see people in those towns than it was for a 22-year-old, 23-year-old guy to knock on doors in some of these Manhattan skyscrapers. I did have one other advantage when I started at Goldman Sachs, in that the senior partner of Goldman Sachs was a man by the name of Gustav Levy. Gus was from New Orleans, and Gus at that time was pretty close to being Mr. Wall Street. Besides being the senior partner of Goldman Sachs, he was the president of the New York Stock Exchange. He was a very well-known philanthropist, and everybody who was anybody in New York knew the name Gus Levy. I learned pretty quickly, when I made telephone calls, that if I said, "This is Henry Levy of Goldman Sachs," and I'd like to come meet Mr. So and So, that it was easier for me to get in to see people because of my last name. And I remember on many occasions knocking on a door, going in, announcing myself that I had uh, a meeting with Mr. So and So, and. Mr. So-and-so's secretary would call him and say, Mr. Levy of Goldman Sachs is here to see you. And these men would come out, and they would see me, and I could see their faces drop. But they all thought that Gus was my father. And it pretty soon said that they knew him, and they said, I know your dad, and I really have great respect for him. And I would just nod my head. I wouldn't lie, but I didn't (laughs) didn't necessarily express myself. Anyway... I knocked on a lot of doors over a three- or four-year period uh, that I was in New York and was able to develop a very, very nice clientele at a very young age. I really always enjoyed meeting people. I enjoyed selling. And in New York in particular, I go into a lot of areas that were Germanic. And because I spoke German before I spoke English, It immediately gave me an opportunity to develop a dialogue with people. uh, And that helped me also develop relationships. I never really intended to stay in New York and live in New York. I was going to be there for a couple of years after business school. And then I was going to go back to Memphis and go into business with my stepfather, David Sternberger. As it turned out, I really enjoyed Goldman. I liked the people there. I liked the way they thought. I liked the way they had helped me. And I told them, when I told them that I wanted to leave or that I intended to leave, they were sorry to hear that because they had spent a lot of time and a lot of dollars on training me. And as I said, in those days, I had been the only one hired in that particular sector of Goldman as opposed to the way it is today today. And they asked me at that time if I would be interested in opening an office for them. I was 25 years old. And they didn't have to ask me twice if I wanted to do that. They asked me to do a study to see whether the firm would be better off having an office in Memphis, in Atlanta, in San Francisco, or in Houston. The firm had no offices at that time in any of those cities. I did a pretty exhaustive study. And I told them in all candor that Memphis was the last place they probably should open an office, but that's where I was going to go. And they said, well, go ahead and try it, open an office for us there. They didn't have to ask me to do it more than once. So I went to Memphis uh, as really a one-man show, rented space in the first Tennessee bank building, and opened an office. And at that time, The only area that we had responsibility for at Goldman was uh, Tennessee. Over a period of time, through a lot of hard work, through luck, through circumstance, uh, the office grew, and uh, we ended up, when I retired, we had about 45 people in the office, and we were responsible for Tennessee, Arkansas, Mississippi, Alabama, Louisiana, parts of Kentucky— So it was a wonderful run. Uh, I was very fortunate to be in the right place at the right time. Again, that's all, Marty, as you mentioned, uh, being born under a lucky star. There were a lot of fortuitous things that happened to me that I tried to take advantage of. And it's one reason that we've been fortunate to be at Bighorn all these many years.
0: Tell me, too, I mean, here you get... An extraordinary education with limited funds from your family because you didn't have, have any. Yeah. and so i'd like to know how how that all comes about but also where did you get this drive and this personal fortitude because you are given opportunities but without the hard work you know we talk today about Younger people not willing to put in that hard work, not willing to because you start at the bottom and you got to go knock on doors. And being a salesperson is probably the greatest, uh, I think, trait someone can have because everybody needs something selling their somebody selling their products. What gave you that drive,
1: Marty? When you when you don't have anything, what choice do you really have if you want to succeed? If you want to earn dollars? A lot of the kids that I grew up with uh, had a lot, belonged to various clubs, were able to take various vacations and do things uh, that I wasn't able to do. And it just comes out of you at some point. You want to be able to do those things. I think the people that I admire the most are people whose children really have a lot, who then on their own still go out and make it on their own as if they hadn't had anything to begin with. Uh, And one of my neighbors is is Fred Smith, who is head of Federal Express, who came from a very well-to-do family, but still was able to build what he's been able to build.
0: Uh, For most of us, born out of necessity was what drove us.
1: No question.
0: um, You now talk about you've had this success, you build this part of... Goldman Sachs, in and around Nashville, and the greater area. When you come here, what brought you to Bighorn to begin with?
1: Marty, we had been going to Maui for many years, for maybe 12, 15 years, when I was still working. That's a long, long way from Memphis. And just on one occasion, Carol and I wanted to stay closer to home. And we made reservations to come here, and I got a pro at Mission Hills to set us up to play various golf courses. We stayed at that Champions Hotel on 111. Uh, We had a great time when we were here, and a couple of days before we were to leave, I I said to him, if you lived here, where would you want to have a home? And he said, let me send you to a place called Bighorn, which at that time I had been open, but still only had one golf course. Well, the minute we drove through the gate at Bighorn, I knew I wanted to be here. And I think what really sold me at that time, the courses are reversed from what they are now with the beginning hole now was where we started. What really sold me, I think, was the fact that the sand rakes were perpendicular. I'd never seen that before, and I thought that was quite something but we ended up buying a lot two days after we had come here. I never really make decisions that quickly. But we ended up buying a lot, building a home. And it's been a terrific nineteen twenty year experience. And we are very fortunate to have it.
0: We've Were got- you still working at that
1: time? Yes. Okay. I worked for about five or six more years after that but we thoroughly have enjoyed it. We're very fortunate to have two children, three grandchildren, ages nine, six, and two, and we've been very, very lucky. I also would make one comment, and I said this in the book that I wrote so that my grandchildren would know where they came from. A lot of my life has benefited from three men that i did have relationships with that i learned from the first was my father who taught me how to work because he had to work Uh, he was 42 years old when he came to this country he had left everything behind he'd been in the wine business all of his life came over close to being penniless and he worked hard we really did not see him a lot because he was always working, trying to build a business. I learned an awful lot from David Sternberger, who was my stepfather, who couldn't have been nicer to me. One of the things that I learned most about David was his ethics and the importance that he put on doing what's right. David always said to me that you can do a 100 good things in your life And if you do one bad thing in your life, when they put you under, it's the one bad thing that people remember about you. And I've never forgotten that. He thought that the most important thing that a person could have was good character. And I've always respected that. And the third individual that I learned a lot from was my wife's father, Carol's dad, uh, Sam Cooper, who also started with nothing. He started as a bookkeeper at a a food company, a cooking oil company in Memphis, and ended up being president of that company and ended up selling it to Kraft. He was a real, real humanitarian, a very philanthropic person who raised money for so many institutions in Memphis that they ended up. Uh, named an expressway after him. He did a lot of work for St. Jude. He was on the board of St. Jude. And he emphasized to me the importance of giving. And it's the concept that a person goes through in life of learning, earning, and returning. And I've never forgotten those words that he uttered to me. So I really have been very fortunate and The title of that book, Born Under a Lucky Star, I know how fortunate I have been.
0: And are there any other people that have been influential in your life?
1: Well, I've been around uh, a lot of very, very successful people. A lot of them who I got to know when I was in New York. Bob Rubin, who was Secretary of the Treasury in the Clinton years Started at Goldman the same time that I did, but in a different area. He worked in the arbitrage area of the firm in the trading room. Stephen Friedman, that name might not be that familiar to you, was head of the Council of Economic Advisors. And I think that was after the Clinton years. My roommate, if I recall, my roommate at Columbia, was a fellow who ended up being head of Chanel, who's out here in the desert now, who's a good friend. There are a lot of people that I was fortunate to come in contact with. One of the things that I learned at Goldman that helped me and that did put me in touch with some very successful people, Goldman was really more of a wholesale type wealth manager. They always emphasized that it was easier to do business with one person who might have $10 million dollars than 10 people who might each have a million dollars, that you didn't spend as much time with that one person, but that you got a lot more out of it and could focus more on that one person. Well, obviously, those were the kind of people that they told me and taught me to call on. And when you go to a place like Nashville or New Orleans or Birmingham or all these towns that I ended up going to, uh, I tried to focus on... The families that had significant investment wealth as opposed to the mass public. And that, I enjoyed that a lot more than maybe working in a warehouse type operation.
0: Also, I would yeah. imagine in a situation like you were in building a career, your wife Carol, too, has to have uh, as a partner for all these years has been uh, influential to say the least.
1: No question. Carol and I are in many respects, completely different. But that sometimes makes a very, very good marriage. Everybody likes my wife, and Carol likes everybody. I'm not quite in that same position, but Carol's always been very helpful, and she's been a great life partner. I'm not the easiest guy in the world to live with, but I do feel I did her parents a favor.
0: Let me ask you a couple of other questions, Henry, and that is, when... You were running Goldman Sachs. What qualities did you look for in people that worked with you?
1: Well, I've always felt that sometimes first impressions are last impressions. So I did look at grades. I looked at activities that people were involved in when they went to school to determine if they got along with people well. I really interviewed a lot of people at Goldman, not just in Memphis, but also in New York, because the interview process was a lot more deliberate then than it is today. Clearly, as I said, ethics and principles uh, were always important. One of the things that I learned at Goldman that always impressed me is the firm said, the most important thing you can do is to stay out of trouble. Don't get the firm in trouble because it's a lot harder to get out of trouble than it is to get in trouble. Ethics, again, character, achievements of what people accomplished in school, those things have always been very important to me.
0: Also, coming here in 1999, as our lives um, continue to change and you spend more time here, this really becomes the community. And I know that you've met... Number of friends here that now you're probably as close to as anybody else our
1: close, throughout your years. Our closest friends over the years are either people that are here now or people that have been here that have moved on to other areas. Those are the people that we spend time with, that we have most in common with, that we enjoy being with. You're absolutely correct. Uh, Bighorn has been a wonderful part of our lives, and we are grateful to be here.
0: If you're here for all of us. Last question, Henry. What advice would you give the 20-year-old Henry Levy today?
1: (laughs) Not to make some of the mistakes that I made over the last uh, 50 years. You know, I just think the world, Marty, is different today than it was, and you've got to adapt to it. Changes are inevitable. Do the best you can. Make the, best, make the most out of the opportunities that you're given, and keep your head down and keep moving.
0: Henry, yeah. thanks for sharing your story. Marty, but- let me
1: also say to you I've said this to you before, I think you do a terrific job doing these uh, podcasts. Uh, and you're to be commended for it.
0: Well, thank you very much. And I was going to say then, I appreciate your honesty, but thanks for being um, so supportive of of this and for coming in and sharing your story. Um, I know everybody comes in and says, well, my story isn't, but we all have unique stories to tell and hopefully we can all learn from them. But most importantly now, we know a little bit more about our community, and so I appreciate you doing this. And thanks again to Leeds and Sun Fine Jewelers and at and for their support of the Bighorn podcast. And we look forward to bringing you more interesting people and their extraordinary stories in the future. Thank you, Henry.